because if you weren't, there's not one of us who would be standing today. We're grateful that you are a faithful God, and we're thankful for your word. And so this morning, as we open its pages, we're not just coming to any other book. We're coming to your inspired word that you have preserved for us for this day, and that you intend to speak to our hearts with this morning. Speak to our hearts, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, and I'm told I need to do a battery switch, so. Anybody want some batteries to throw at me? Oh, wait, we're not in Cleveland Brown Stadium, that's right. Is that better? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not thankful for Ed. Okay. <laughs> you know, as we were singing this morning, and I appreciate those who make the effort to lead us well in singing, as we were singing this morning, I was just reminded that it's good to gather, to sing together, and I think sometimes, you know, if, no matter what your background is, you expect to go to church and sing something or, you know, do something, be involved in something, but I'm reminded of this. Heaven's going to be a lot of singing, isn't it? Heaven's going to be a lot of singing, and heaven's going to be a lot of us gathering together and being together. And every Sunday when we gather together, we look one another in the eye, we sing together, and, and whether or not your heart's into the singing or not, and if you're, if you're at a point where you're grieving or you're dealing with sadness, one of the hardest things to do is sing, right? It's one of the hardest things to do, but one of the best things to do is to listen to others sing, right? No matter what the circumstances, I'm reminded that one day, we will gather in a perfect place before a perfect throne, before a perfect God, and everything will be all right. Isn't that a great thought? Isn't that a, isn't that a great thing to hang on to this morning? And I'm praying that you have a wonderful Thanksgiving with your family and friends. I'm not preaching a Thanksgiving message this morning per se, but I think if you're thinking along with me and if you're following the text this morning, you will find plenty to be thankful for in this text this morning. We're turning to Genesis chapter 49. We are rapidly coming to the end here. And our goal this morning is to consider the first 12 verses. If you're new with us, we have been preaching for like the last 25 years through the book of Genesis, right? Just feels that way. But we have learned so much, and I think we're growing because we're, we're in the pages of Genesis. And last week, Pastor Andy did a great job with chapter 48. And, and we learn that now Joseph, after 17 years of being down in Egypt, he has suddenly taken a turn health-wise, and he's sick. And he's on his deathbed, but he still wants to finish well. And part of finishing well is basically is, is pronouncing blessings on his sons. And, and he has work to do. He has, he's pronounced the double blessing on Joseph, which we saw that last week Pastor Andy pointed out to us, that should have been Reuben's blessing. Reuben was the firstborn. That should have been his blessing. But the double blessing came about in a most unconventional way. It went to Joseph's two sons, not even on Joseph himself, but it went to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And literally, we saw Jacob adopting those two sons, making them his own. So now he has 14 sons. 
when he leaves this life. And this morning, I want to make it easy on you. Some of us were struggling with trying to keep up with 10 points last week. I'm just saying. <sighs> it was hard, man. I'm teasing him because I told him, I said, it takes a lot of guts to say you're going to go 10 points and actually do it. <laughs> I got three for us this morning because my mind can't count that high. And I want you to see these three truths, and I want to give them to you right at the outset because I don't want you to miss them. First thing we're going to see in our text this morning as we look at the first 12 verses of Genesis 49 is this. Our choices in life, your choices in life, my choices in life, they have real consequences. They have real consequences. The choices that we make have real consequences. Secondly, we have seen this throughout the book, but even as you come to the end, I think it's important to bring this to bear, that our God, the Almighty One, the, the Sovereign One, is not bound by man's traditions, He's not limited by man's understanding, He's above all, and He will accomplish His will in His way in order that He might receive the maximum glory. And I think that's something we can be thankful for. And then thirdly, before we leave this text this morning, I, I want us to see, because in, in spite of the way that the rest of my fellow elders feel about it, Christmas is coming, hallelujah. I love Christmas. Bring it on. I've had Christmas music playing in my office since the beginning of October. How can we not be thrilled that Christ came to this earth? I'm just saying, okay? Oh, I celebrate every day in my heart. Oh, You know what? Next Sunday you're going to come here and there's going to be Christmas trees up and it will feel like Christmas. Aren't you glad of that, church? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I have to sit through elders meetings where I am the unique minority in there where they pick on me for this. I need your help, church. One of our elders is sick at home because he doesn't like Christmas. I'm pretty sure of it. <laughs> Love you, Paul. <clears throat> but the third thing I want you to see is that there's clear messianic prophecy through a really unlikely source. And that deals directly with the Christmas story. It deals directly with the Christmas story. We're going to see it in our text today. So let's dive in. Genesis chapter 49. If you've got a copy of God's Word, get it out. Look at it. Someone next to you doesn't have it, share it with them. It's really important. The most important thing you're going to hear this morning is God's word, not mine, okay? The most important thing you're going to hear this morning is the words we're about to read here this morning. So, so let's, let's fix our eyes on them and let's take them in. Genesis 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what is to happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father, Reuben. You are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let not my soul come, or let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, 
Your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. Some of your Bibles say until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, very simply this morning, what we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, give us this morning. And what we are not, would you make us please through Jesus Christ our Lord. If this is your prayer, would you join me in saying, amen. So Jacob is now at the end of his life. And he brings his sons to him that he might bless them. It says here in verse 1 that he's going to tell them what is about to happen. But I want you to skip to the end of the chapter. Because I want you to see how God records this for us. Because it's really clear here in verse 28... What, what, what God has to say about what Jacob is doing here. And all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to each of them as he blessed them, blessing them with the blessing suitable to him. So as God looks at this, this is Jacob giving blessings to his son. Although if you were paying attention as we were reading this morning, a lot of it didn't sound like blessing, did it, church? Specifically, if you were Simeon and Levi, you would not have left that session with dad feeling very blessed. I don't know about you, can I just say this? I have a pet peeve. And if you do it, I don't, I don't hold it against you. In fact, some of you are going to do it even more, all the more now to me. As soon as I say this, I don't like it when people come up to me and they say blessings. Here's the problem with that. I understand you mean well with that. You can't bring blessings to me. There's only one who can. You want to say something nice to me is say, hey, PD, how are you doing? I pray that God blesses you. But you can't bring blessing to me. Only God can. Now that I know, every one of you are going to send me emails, blessings, PD. But here we have Jacob being the mouth for God. And it's interesting to me that God would even take what we would call negative things and call them blessings. And call them blessings. Which brings me to my first point. You know, God will bless every one of us one day. God will bring into account all of our lives. And what we have here is, is as I think in many ways, a, a foretaste of how God is going to deal with each one of us. In that God keeps account of how we live in this life. And the choices that you and I make that, that sometimes go on day after day, and they seem so insignificant, but they are building an account, are they not, with God? And the choices that you and I make, the things that we do, will one day be brought to light. We see here that, that 
what happened in the past directly affects how Jacob is going to predict their future, how God is going to work in them. And it seems almost too simplistic to have to point out to a wise group of people like you, but it's really true. Our choices have circumstances, and I think the reason I have to point that out is, is we live in a day and age where seemingly society all around us is doing their best to avoid the consequences of our choices. Do you feel that way sometimes? We live in a world where, where if you do wrong, it's very clear. If you do wrong, what should happen? I mean, the old line used to be, don't do the crime if you can't what? Pay the time. I think somebody in our judicial system needs to learn that and be reminded of that today. That's not the way things work anymore. We live in a world, and I'm sure it would be none of the parents in this room today because you're all perfect parents. But we live in a world today where parents do not hold their children accountable because we need to be gentle with them. That's a lie from the pit of hell, by the way. Ask any school teacher today what happens with gentle parented children. They're the worst brats in their class. Because we don't want to hold people accountable. And I think many times parents don't want to hold their children accountable because they don't want to be held accountable. But let's understand something. Whether or not the government holds us accountable, whether or not we hold the government accountable, whether or not we as parents are holding our children accountable, or if we've been held accountable on our job or not, one day God will hold us accountable. And you cannot avoid that. And what we see here in this text is, is that God is paying attention and that Jacob has paid attention. And it begins with the oldest, Reuben. Can you imagine the bittersweet feelings that Reuben has as, as he, along with his brothers, are summoned in? He knows, he knows he's going to be the first one. And there's probably some hope there. I don't believe Reuben knows what has happened in chapter 48. He doesn't know that, that the firstborn blessing has been given to Joseph's two sons. And so Reuben, as his name is called, he probably comes before his father and he bows. And it's one of those moments where it's like, I know what's about to happen here. i got to act really humble, right? And when you begin to read this in, verses, in verse 3, excuse me, you see that this blessing starts off really well, right? Reuben. You are my firstborn. You're my might. You're the first fruits of my strength. You're preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And I think what Jacob here is doing is he's remembering Reuben before Reuben fell into grievous sin, right? This is who you were. You were my firstborn. You were my rock. I could depend on you. You, you. you were a great big brother. You looked out for him. You led them well. I could trust you with the family business. You were a great shepherd. You did all these things. You were an extension of me as dad out there in the field. And if you're like Reuben, you can just feel those words in your heart. And you're beginning to think, yeah, I was. I, I am. I am the leader of this family. Uh, I am the guy. Keep going, Dad. Keep going. And then he goes, yeah, you're like a pot of boiling water. Do you see it there in verse 4? You're unstable as water. 
And after he says you're preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, in verse 3, he says this, you will not have preeminence. Just a stabbing of his heart. You have everything going for you, but you're not going to have preeminence. And then he is quick to point out why he would not have preeminence. And let's be honest, it's one of the more unsavory, disgusting parts of the book of Genesis, is it not? Reuben's story. God doesn't only tell us of the account with Reuben when it happens. He tells us about it a second time, and he says this, I haven't forgotten. And here's the thing. We might be tempted to think that God is just being unforgiving here, that God is just being harsh with with Reuben, but here's the thing we have to know about God. Our God is a pardoning God, is he not? But who does our God pardon? He pardons those who come seeking repentance and forgiveness. And this tells us a lot about Reuben. Reuben, in his pride of being the firstborn, and in his desire to make sure that Leah, his mother, was honored well, because he knew that his dad didn't honor his mother like he should have. He goes in after Rachel dies, and he sleeps with Rachel's handmaid, Bilhah, to make sure that her children are defiled too. That's why he did that to make sure that Leah gets the rightful position. But in doing so, he says this, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. And what's interesting about this is, is the use of the pronoun he, he went up to my couch. It's almost like Jacob in front of the other son says this, your older brother, is a terrible person because he did this. And we're like, man, if I'm the other sons, I'm afraid to get the blessing, aren't you, at this point? What's interesting is this prophecy comes true for Reuben. And I want to just point out to two verses of Scripture that kind of bear this out. Go with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 1. I want you to see how this bears out later on in Israel's history. 1 Chronicles in, in chapter 5 and verse 1. And so as, as, as Israel is moving forward and, 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 and they're now under, under King David, and, and, and really it's actually just before King David, we're, in, we're under King Saul, as, as now First Chronicles, we're giving the generations of the, of the tribes here. First Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 1, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Even as the generations and the genealogies are playing out, what is it that Reuben is remembered for, church? His sin. He's remembered for his sin. Go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 33. Moses is interceding, as Moses was often found doing for his people, the people that he led. And he's giving a final blessing to them. 
And he intercedes for Reuben very specifically, the tribe of Reuben, in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 6, where he says this, let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. What you and I don't realize and what's happening here is, is literally the tribe of Reuben is just kind of falling off the face of the earth. It's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And Moses prays for them, don't let them die out, God, but don't ever let them get big. Because of the shame that follows him. You know, there's not one important person that we can point to in the Bible, in Israel's history, that traces their lineage to the, to the tribe of Reuben. I find that striking, don't you? And what I can just say about that is, is our sin has consequences. And what we don't ever have record of here in Reuben's life is where Reuben ever came to a point where he was broken over that sin, confessed it to his father, and sought his father's forgiveness. Now, Reuben tried to do a couple good things, did he not? He, he tried to protect Joseph before Joseph was taken as a slave. He had a plan, but he never really stood up for Joseph with the brothers. He was just going to sneak him away. And so our sin has consequences. Back to Genesis chapter 49. As Reuben walks back away from being in front of his father, and he has that bitter taste of not getting the blessing in his mouth, Jacob does something a little unconventionally here. Rather than calling them one by one, he brings up his next two sons, the next two oldest boys. And there's a reason he brings Simeon and Levi together, because Simeon and Levi were, were cohorts together in one of the greatest shames that ever came to Jacob. He brings them together, and when we bring up Simeon and Levi, we have to go back to chapter 34 in our minds, and we have the very unfortunate reality of what happens in a sin-cursed world, and what happens in a sin-cursed world is you and I are sometimes the victims of sin, are we not? And we're, here we have a great victimization, if you will. We have Dinah. The sister of the first four older brothers, Dinah is raped. And when Dinah is raped, Levi and Simeon seemingly take matters into their own hands because their dad is too passive in their minds. Jacob doesn't handle this in the way that the brothers think that he should. And remember, the brothers already have this built-in rivalry, and they already think that Joseph is the favored one. The sun rises and sets on Joseph, and Joseph is Joseph this, Joseph that. And, and so they're going to show their dad how a real man deals with, with injustice in this world. And if you remember, they take something that was given to them by God as a sign of the covenant circumcision, and they go to the people of Shechem and they say, you know what? We want to get friendly relations with you. We know that you may have raped our sister. We realize that, that you might want to just try to, to make things right with us. And so here's what we're going to do. We think that you guys, all your men should be circumcised. They didn't really care about them converting to their faith. What they cared about was making them really sore. Can I just be honest with you? And when they're really sore on the third day, Genesis 34 records for us, on the third day, when they're at the peak of their soreness, what do they do? They come in and slaughter all of them. 
And not only that, they destroy all their animals here, it says here, by hamstringing them in verse 6 of Genesis 49. You would think that would be the thing that Jacob would be so upset about because at, at that moment, Jacob said to them, you have brought total shame on me. You have made me look terrible in this community. The people are going to hate us all around us. They're not going to trust us. But notice what he curses them for. Look at verse 6. Let my soul not come into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. What is it that Jacob curses them for? It's for their angry hearts. Now, one of the blessings of expository preaching by going through passage by passages is that we get confronted with some things that we ought not to ignore. And here in this passage, we are confronted with the fact that there are people in this room, there are people all over the world that deal with angry hearts. We see it right here, right? It's, it's their anger that, that they're being cursed for here. It's not even the deed that they did. It's the fact that they didn't curb the anger of their heart, that they didn't deal with the anger of their heart. And yet today, the, our world is full of angry people. And even in our church, we probably have angry people. And we blame it on this. It's just the way that God wired me. Don't mistake the fact that God made you passionate for the fact that God made you angry. There's a difference. There's a difference. And too often, we, we as parents, we look at our angry children and we're like this. It's just a phase they're going through. I guarantee you, if you do not help them and break them of their anger, you will regret it one day just like Jacob did. Like, it's just the way God made them, and we just need to, we need to let them, we, don't, we certainly don't want to upset them. Parent, if you've got an angry child, you, that ought to drive you to your knees before God, begging him to change their heart. And it ought to be driving you to your knees to say this, Lord, what is it you need me to do to help change their heart? They're cursed because of their anger. And notice the curse that he puts on them. Because you did this to Shechem, at the end of verse 7, this is what God says, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Hmm. The prophecy comes true. And why? Because God's word is true and it can be trusted, okay? But the prophecy comes true. It says they're going to be divided and scattered. What's interesting is Simeon and Levi never got a territory whenever, whenever Israel came back to the promised land. They never got a territory that was just theirs. If you're a Bible scholar, you know this. If, you, if you're a student of the Word, you know this. Simeon ended up being assimilated into the tribe of Judah. He ended up, his, his descendants, they ended up living with the tribe of Judah. They never got a land that they could call their own. You could never say as a Simeonite, well, in our hometown over here, you had no hometown. It was all Judah's towns. You were just allowed to live there. And if you were a Levite, you lived in the cities of refuge that were all spread around Israel. You didn't get, you didn't get a territory of your own because God keeps his word. 
which then brings us to the fourth son, the last son of Leah. Now, just stop and think here for a second. Reuben, we knew, did some bad things, right? Levi and Simeon, we knew, did some bad things. Do we know, church, especially those of you who have been tracking along, has Judah done a bad thing too? Imagine Judah knowing he's number four after hearing the first two. Blessings. I'd be out the door. Like, I already know what you're going to say, Dad. No. Judah only gets blessing. And I've tried to point this out, and and the rest of us have tried to point this out as we have been weaving this tale and going through as God weaves this tale for us in Genesis. Judah actually showed the, the, the marks of a changed heart, did he not? It's Judah who guarantees before his father Jacob the life of Benjamin. And he says, if we go back with Benjamin, I guarantee you, Dad, that that Benjamin will be safe. And when they get back there and Joseph wants to test his brothers to see whether or not they really are changed men, who is the one that demonstrates the change to Joseph? It's Judah who says, take me. Take me. Do not take Benjamin. Take me. I will take whatever punishment is his. Because remember, Joseph rigged the system. He put the stolen, the stolen vessel in Benjamin's bag. Judah's a changed man. And notice the blessing. Verse 8, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. You're a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Yeah. Judah is the same guy who in chapter 38, after his wife dies, and after he will not give his last-born son to Tamar to raise up offspring to keep the family line going, he goes and hires a prostitute who happens to be who? Tamar. When I was preaching this, when we were going through this, when we were studying it, I can't remember if I preached it, but I remember even thinking this to myself was this. Ooh, that's gross. Anybody else with me on that? That's just gross. But what's interesting is, even in that text, we saw his humility when at the end of that text he said this, my daughter-in-law is more noble than I am. He has a changed heart. He has a, he has a heart that's willing to be changed. Which brings us to our second point this morning. First, first point is what? Our, our actions bear what? Consequences, right? Secondly, over and over, and again here, the book of Genesis reminds us that God is not obligated to operate according to man's wisdom, his traditions, or his ideas. He notices that here... Who is the one who's going to be the dominant lion? The fourth-born son. He's pretty much a middle child. Or he, in, in the terms of Leah, he's the last-born. I'm a last-born. I know how last-borns are. We're the brats. Judah's the brat of Leah's family. He is. He's the brat. He's the spoiled one. Leah probably spoiled him more than the other ones. 
She probably had gotten tired of raising those three scoundrels before him, and she probably, she probably tried gentle parenting with him, let's be honest. <laughs> right? She probably just gave up at that point. And, and here's what Jacob says, you're going to be the dominant lion. This one who had been humbled by his sin would be chief among his brothers. You know? And what he points out is this, one day all your brother's descendants will bow down to you. Notice that? You see that there at the end of verse 8? Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Now think about it. What special line in Israel came through Judah? The royal line, right? And when you're king, what do your subjects do to you? They bow down before you. Again, God keeps his word here. And he does it through the fourthborn. But what's really interesting to me about this is, and this plays into last week's message is, normally the role of family leader goes to the firstborn, does it not? It goes in that blessing part of it, right? And, and, and we saw last week that Joseph's sons, and, and not even the right son, remember Joseph tried to, to get Jacob to uncross his hands? So Joseph's younger born son, he is, he is the one who is given the place of honor, right? But he is never told he's going to be the leader. That was just kind of an understood in that time. Whoever gets the double blessing, whoever receives that, would be the one who would be the leader of the family, okay? Think about this. Jacob shouldn't have been the leader of the family because Isaac's firstborn son was Esau, right? But yet, who got the blessing and who became the leader? It was Jacob. Now... God doesn't even give the privilege of leadership to one of Joseph's sons, which is really interesting, but it also is practical when you think about it. Joseph's sons are half what? Egyptian, right? Joseph himself can't lead because he's too busy leading what? A whole nation, right? He's number two. He's number two there. He's, he's occupied with that. So there's a practical reason why God chooses Judah here, but there's also this unconventional reason that God does it his way so that he gets the most glory. God's going to work his plan his way. Yes, Joseph did dream that his family would one day bow before him. Did they do that? But that doesn't mean they're going to bow before him forever. Which leads us into our third point. There's a beautiful messianic prophecy. Our messianic prophecy just is this. It's about the Messiah coming, right? It's a prophecy about the Messiah coming. And before Jacob is done talking to Judah, Judah 1 is stunned already. And then he says this in verse 10, the scepter. What is a scepter? Well, just not too long ago, England went through all their pomp and circumstance, right? And and, and Queen Elizabeth dies, and now we have King Charles, right? And when one of the things King Charles got as a sign of his power, which is really all ceremonial now, but it used to be real power, right? King of England used to have real power. One of the things he got was a scepter, okay? And they bring out this thing, and they put it in his hand, and they've got a crown on his head. Remember, if you ever watched it on TV, the crown's so heavy, the guy can barely stand up, right? And he can barely hold the weight up, and he's holding this scepter. 
And it's a symbol of his power, of his authority. Think that now in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is a pure prophecy about the Messiah that's to come. Think about modern-day Israel right now. It is a messed-up place, right? Is there a king ruling over Israel right now? I know you're going to give me the answer, well, yes, king in heaven, right? But is there a king ruling over Israel right now? No, it's a prime minister, and and the prime minister is struggling to get things done because that will never get solved until the true king comes and takes his throne. And what... Jacob is pointing out, and what Jacob is foreshadowing, he's talking about King Jesus here. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute, or until Shiloh, until that word Shiloh in your, I think it's in the King James Bible, a couple other translations have that word Shiloh there. It's a really interesting and hard thing for Bible scholars to understand. It can mean sent one. It can mean sun. It can mean peace. I can think of one guy who fits all three of those descriptions, can't you? Who is a sent one, who is a sun, and who brings peace, right? When the old rabbis wrote and they were putting together the Talmud, it was the proper name for the Messiah in the Talmud was Shiloh. And what Jacob is prophesying here is an eternal ruler that would come from Judah's line. That would come from Judah's line. And I want you to think about that. And I know it's the Messiah because look at the end of verse 10. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples, not just the brothers, but the peoples of the world. And let's understand something. That same God that we read about in Psalm 82... (coughs) excuse me, one day has a plan that all the peoples will bow before King Jesus. And Jacob is foreshadowing that. And you say, what are verses 11 and 12 all about, PD? You know, binding his foal to the vine. Well, the last place you would take your young horse or your young donkey would be where you were keeping grapes, because what will they do? They will eat them and destroy them. And what he's pointing to is a time of great prosperity where you don't even care if the animals get in with the grapes. There's so many grapes. In fact, there's so many grapes that they're literally washing their clothes in the grapes. See it there? He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. He's pointing to a time when literally King Jesus will rule on this earth. And I want to tell you, there is no politician that can deliver the prosperity that King Jesus will deliver. And all of this comes through the unlikely son, Judah. I was thinking about this today. If I'm like, okay, so if I'm God... That's always dangerous to think that way, right? (laughs) But we do it, right? (laughs) And I'm thinking, if I'm God, we know that Jacob preferred Joseph, and Joseph is probably too occupied to do this. So if I'm God, I probably would choose Benjamin 
If I wanted to do it unconventionally, I'd choose the youngest son. I'll, I'll show you all. I'll pick the youngest one. He'll be the guy who gets the double blessing. He'll be the guy who rules over all. No. God picks another scoundrel, doesn't he? He picks another scoundrel, a humble scoundrel, but nonetheless, he's a scoundrel. And I told you, Christmas is coming, hallelujah, right? When you go to Matthew chapter 1, go with me to Matthew chapter 1, and you read this genealogy, this is the royal line of King Jesus, this is how Jesus is established as, as, as in David's line, this is what Matthew is writing about here, right? And you begin reading Matthew 1, and I would say to you, with Christmas coming, you ought to read Matthew chapter 1. <laughs> you really ought to. Matthew 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And, 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 and we're thinking along like, yes, this is great. Abraham, father Abraham had many sons. Isaac, he was pretty solid. Jacob, he finished well. And then, what? Judah? Jacob's the father of Judah and his brothers, and in fact, God doesn't even varnish it. He doesn't hide it. He puts it right in the account. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. If you and I were telling the story, if this was our family tree, that would be one of those ones that when our kids ask us at the family reunion, Why, what is going We'll talk about that later. Right? We'll talk about that later in the car on the seven-hour ride home. And your kids, when you tell them the story, they'd be like, what? Every family has it. Don't deny that you don't. God doesn't hide it. He doesn't hide it. And in fact, every time you find a woman mentioned in this, you will find scandal. Do you realize that? You find Rahab in there. Is there a little bit of scandal about who Rahab is or what she did for a living? Yeah. You find, you find the wife of Uriah mentioned, otherwise known as who? Bathsheba. Is there a little scandal there maybe? Yeah. You find Mary mentioned there. Is there a little scandal with Mary? Teenage bride. We don't know who the dad is. Right? And then I keep going forward in the book of Matthew, and I come to verse 21. You guys ought to be impressed that I'm getting Christmas in my message before Thanksgiving, by the way. <laughs> she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save who? Who? His people. You don't have to go any further than his family line, which is full of scandal. Jesus came to redeem his own family. And I find great comfort in that because I'm no better than the scoundrels in that line. He came to redeem me. He came to save me. All this comes through the line of Judah. And see, Genesis, really, all the way back in chapter 3 and verse 15, is pointing us to a Savior that's coming. And now at the end of Genesis, we're being pointed to the Savior who is coming. All of Scripture is pointing us to the Messiah. All of Scripture is doing that. 
And so this morning, if you really truly, if I want to make a Thanksgiving application here, let me make it this way. If you really truly want to be thankful in the most best way, that was a bad use of infinitives, I know. But if you want to be thankful in the very best way, the only way you can truly be thankful is to have experienced the total absolution of your sins that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Because here's the thing. If the gospel hasn't changed you, you have a lot to worry about more than you have to be thankful for. And really, that's why we live in an ungrateful world, people. Do you understand that? they got a lot to worry about. Because we do have a God who will, who will bring the consequences to bear. We've seen that here, have we not? We have a God who keeps an account. But even greater than a God who keeps an account is we have a God who loves us and sent His Son to die for us. So that we might be redeemed. And until you and I see ourselves as one of His people and understand what it means to be one of His people... <laughs> It means to be like a Judah. It means to be like a David. It means to be like a Rahab. It means to be an outsider like Ruth. Until we see ourselves that way, until we humble ourselves under the hand of this Almighty One, He will not lift us up. You know... There's also something else to be thankful for in this text. Revelation chapter 5 lists Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. I love that. Judah was, Judah was the lion's cub, remember? He's the lion's cub. He's a little baby lion, and one day, folks, the real lion is going to roar, and that's something we can all be thankful for. Aren't you thankful for that? I don't always agree with C.S. Lewis, but when he portrayed Aslan as a lion, dude got it right. Dude got it right. And the lion will one day roar. And this ties in with Psalm 82 that we read this morning. I was thinking about this. Yeah, there's a lot of injustice in this world, but one day the lion will roar, church. The lion will roar. And all the injustices will be made right. Paul tells us in Philippians that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And I, I would beg of you today, if, if you have never humbled yourself before King Jesus, do it now before you are forced to do it. Because every knee will bow. I don't care if you're the president of the United States. I don't care if you're the head of China, whatever he is, the premier, whatever they call him. I don't care if you are, think you are the king of the world. You will bow to the king. And church, if he is the Lord, then he is the worthy one, is he not? He is the worthy one. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song that doesn't, doesn't seem like a really good Thanksgiving song, but it's, to me, it's one of the best Thanksgiving songs ever written. And it asks the question, do you feel the world is broken? How many of you agree, the world is broken? Can I say it this way without seeming to be disrespectful? It is going to hell in a handbasket. Is it not? Do you feel like darkness is growing in this world? 
the last election cycle in Ohio, did you feel like darkness was growing? Yeah. Does it, do you look around, is your body groaning? <laughs> is all of creation groaning? Yeah. Don't miss the message of the song. With all that stuff going on, it's really easy to get this attitude of complaint, is it not? Like, we'll never change, we'll never stem the tide, and guess what? We probably won't, because the Bible says, Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, those were not good days, by the way. We may not stem the tide, but there is a worthy one in heaven. And the lion will roar one day, and for that, we can all be thankful, can we not? Father, we thank you that in Christ, we have the victory. But it's only through Christ, it's only in Christ that we have it. And my prayer this morning is, Father, for those who have not humbled themselves before this Almighty One, before this worthy King, that today would be the day that they would humbly bow, that, that you would lift them up to receive salvation, that they, we would understand there is one who is worthy. It's not ourself, Lord. We're not the worthy ones, but our Savior is. Remind us of those truths, even as we sing them to one another now. In Jesus' name, amen.